it's interesting when you talk about moments and and obviously i knew before that you were going to talk about moments and you become quite reflective on certain things and so a moment that i recall quite distinctly from my childhood that i don't really talk about publicly some of you in the room may or may not know when i was 10 my dad became leader of the labor party and when i was 13 he became prime minister of the country and that is something that it's impossible to escape will have an impact on your life and the person you are and there are, there are lots of reasons I don't talk about it very much. But the thing that I reflected on, that it made me feel most distinctly, and obviously access to tremendous privilege, right? Because an accident of birth means suddenly you get access to opportunities that other people don't have. But the thing that probably it gave me most was the fact that it was very easy for me to believe anything is possible. Because when your dad, who's just your dad, can go and do something like that, it's easy to assume, well, surely anyone can go and do that. And of course, that's not always the reality, because the fact is there are structural barriers, there are societal barriers to people being able to achieve what they want. And it's one of the reasons at White Hat we've always been so passionate about the idea of role models. Because if you can't give people a way of actually seeing something better in their lives, it's so hard for them to connect with that. And so I grew up in those weird but very privileged circumstances. And then I got to 18 and I didn't know particularly what I wanted to do. I actually wanted to be a software engineer, um, but I couldn't face the idea of studying computer science at university. So instead I did ancient history, which was uniquely useless to equip me for any sensible career. The opposite end. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> and it, it just, the reason I went to university was because my mum told me I had to, and there was no good reason for it, right? It didn't connect with what I did next or anything else. Weirdly and slightly contradictory, uh, really, I also did a master's and that at that point was more because I didn't really know what I wanted to do and I did a master's in international relations because I thought I care about the world I care about what's going on in the world and maybe I might want to go and work in government one day of course I then did something again completely contradictory and joined an investment bank working at Morgan Stanley <laughs> and I reflect on those five years I spent um, at Morgan Stanley is really teaching me a lot about what I didn't want to do I worked in corporate debt and derivatives, and it's a very technical environment within an investment bank. And I joined just as the financial crisis was hitting. So it wasn't, you sort of, I went in 2007, 2008, where bankers were being told they were masters of the universe. And then very quickly, everyone realized that wasn't true. And actually a lot of them were quite the opposite. And the thing that really frustrated me about my time in investment banking was you had this palpable sense that however smart or capable or whatever else you might be, you were a cog in a wheel. And it was very difficult to change anything about that industry. And the things I always really cared about anywhere were education and employment. And I did, one of the themes here seems to be, I keep going in slightly weird directions, <laughs> but I joined an organization helping long-term unemployed people find work because I was very clear that what I was doing um, at that time, wasn't making me happy. It wasn't something I cared about. And when you were working that hard um, in an industry where burnout is pretty high, if you're not doing something you really believe in, it catches up with you quite quickly. And I joined this organization called Serena Russo Group. It was run by a really inspiring and very interesting Australian entrepreneur um, who herself had, had immigrated to Australia age seven from Sicily, didn't speak any English, her family had no money, but she ended up becoming one of the wealthiest women in Australia. Um, 
and we helped 100,000 long-term unemployed people find work. And that felt fulfilling up to a point. I became UK CEO and thought, okay, here we can start to drive real change. The challenge was when we unpicked what those 100,000 people who were previously long-term unemployed were going on to do, too often their experiences were of work as a very temporary fleeting thing. There's often jobs in, in charity shops, jobs in, in kind of temporary retail, um, jobs as cleaners, jobs in hospitality, but not really long-term jobs. And it was apparent that there was this whole group of jobs, like the investment banking one I'd gone to, that were essentially being placed out of reach of a massive part of society who didn't come from central casting, elite university, from the right sort of background. And so that was a really clear driver in White Hat and how that came about. Right. That's a good start. Um, our lives couldn't be much more different, if I'm brutally honest with you. So I wanted to join banking and I got a job in 2008 uh, trading uh, interest rate derivatives for Eastern <laughs> Europe. And then the crisis came and my world disappeared from me. I thought it was my, my path to change a generation uh, and earn as much money as I possibly could do. And then it disappeared. And then I joined WorldPay and I'm so pleased with the way that my path continued from there, but it couldn't be more different. What, what in your life in investment banking and early career, like what did you see or what did you observe that made you think White Hat is the thing to do or lead you to this mission yeah. more so than the company? So it was partly that piece I was talking about before in terms of who gets access to certain types of opportunities. So take investment banking, at Morgan Stanley, very elite, very storied investment bank. The people I was working with were all basically from the same kind of backgrounds that I was from. They were overwhelmingly white, male, middle class. In fact, in our team of 10 people, there wasn't a single woman, there wasn't a single non-white person. Everyone had gone to three different universities. And that immediately became problematic. And actually post the financial crisis, there was a hope that banks would be a little humbled and slightly change their approach. Some of them are doing so now, but it's taken a very long time for that to happen. And I think that struck me as odd, that basically there was very rare to hear a dissenting voice or someone who genuinely thought differently if you were having a meeting or talking about how to approach a problem. And there is lots and lots of great data now on just why diversity is so important, but this was a really clear living and breathing example mm -hmm. of a group of people who were all thinking the same way. And then the next, the next kind of part was just looking at the landscape and, and doing the stuff we were doing then at Serena Russo Group to help long-term unemployed people find work was that a lot of them actually had degrees and they still couldn't find jobs. And the degrees anyway they were getting weren't preparing them for the labor market. And so we talk a lot about White Hat around how university is broken because actually as a one size fits all model, it's a really destructive thing for society. And it's quite a destructive thing for the people who are paying ever increasing amounts of money to go and pursue that path. Because without a sustained challenge to universities and model, a few things have happened. The first is that people have fetishized academic learning. So they assume that the best kind of learning is that that happens on the university campus. Actually, as we're seeing in the changes that are, are currently affecting the world of work, particularly around automation and digitization, but lots of other changes, that's clearly not true. Actually, problem solving is important. Applied learning is really essential. But university doesn't give you any of that for the most part. And the other thing that was clear was that university was failing on pretty much every diversity metric. And there was a story um, a couple of days ago in the papers about, uh, I think it was Cambridge, applauding the fact they'd had 20 extra black applicants out of 
over 10,000 students. And you think, well, there's something wrong there. And if you look at corporate graduate schemes, 60% of people on corporate graduate schemes were educated at private school. That's versus just seven or eight percent of the country. Clearly, the system isn't broadening access. And so the idea was if you can create an alternative to university that focuses on applied learning, teaching people how to do things, not just academics, um, and crucially then gives different types of people the opportunity to go and explore that path because it's fundamentally assessing for different things. Mm -hmm. You can create something that gives employers what they need because actually they need skills more than just knowledge and give young people a very clear option who don't, like you, don't want to go to university or don't find that particularly inspiring. Okay, cool. Well, one last question and I'm going to open up for a few questions just to break this up a little bit before we move on to education. So if anyone's got anything burning, then uh, get ready to put your hand up. Um, so we talk about moments all of the time um, at Mo, hence the name. Um, moments that stand out and moments that really kind of mean something to you that you want to capture in your history, ancient history. Um, it would be great to understand, like, what is your standout moment so far of your career? It's really, I kind of don't want to answer with this because it's really hard to escape, but um, finding, founding White Hat was, was one of those kind of moments because starting a business is something, and I've been CEO of a business before, but it's so different when you start something from scratch. You've got to build a website, you've got to register the company, and then actually one of the first things you have to do, and it's, it's the moment at which you realize maybe this might work, is you've got to convince people to come and work for you and join you <laughs> yeah. in doing that. And actually we have our employee number three at White Hat in the room, Cameron Bishop. And I told him I wouldn't say, <laughs> go on Cameron. <laughs> and we're now 140 people, but it was the first time I met people like Cameron and he had a lot of options and could have gone and done nearly anything he wanted. And he thought, I love what you're doing and came to work for White Hat. That was a pretty special moment. <laughs> I do know exactly what you mean though because Mark up there is our first employee getting very embarrassed he did a masters in theoretical <laughs> physics and joined us oh, wow. <laughs> anyone that wants to stay for questions I'm sure we've got a little bit more time at the end um, we're going to go on to education so I think I was the first person to sit down in the room rather embarrassingly um, and I think you shared your story in terms of pressure to go to university from your, from your mum um, so it's kind of, there's a lot for me in which the way in which we understand work and the way that we perceive workers is they go to university, have really high expectations, experiences in our world as the way that we think about stuff as a consumer has lifted your expectation, going and getting a degree has lifted your expectation. Like how can organisations at a practical level deal with one, people that have that expectation and then two, how can they foster belief for people that don't? Hmm. It's a very good question. I think that's good. You've answered yeah, all yeah, of them off yeah. the bat. I'm pleased there's one that. Uh, on the expectation front, um, there's every everyone who is there's employers typically want people with high expectations. They want people who are driven and think they can do great things. I think the challenge is at the moment without the right support it's difficult for some people to unlock that so i'll, I'll use the example of our apprentices we we give people face-to-face one-on-one coaching at the very very start of their apprenticeship program and the reason we do that is until we make that intervention 
It's quite common that no one will ever have spent time to them on a one-on-one -on -one basis reflecting on what they're actually good at, and they all have strengths, even if they're not aware of them, mm -hmm. and then what they're really capable of and unpicking their desires and the values and the things that matter to them. And so I think the more employers can actually engage with people who are joining their workforces outside of just the working environment and give them support to access training and teaching is really important. We don't value training or learning and development nearly enough in this country. We spend a fifth per capita of what they spend in the US on learning and development as an example. And so apprenticeship programs give you a great kind of structured excuse to go and actually do something about that and use it. The other thing though is if you're talking about the kind of talent attraction piece, we, we're increasingly now dealing with Gen Z rather than millennials. And more than millennials, Gen Z care about working with companies that they would broadly see as purposeful. Now that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be doing something that's socially good, though of course it helps, um, but they do need to feel that their values are aligned with what your company's trying to do. And there are a lot of established companies that don't spend enough time, other than kind of window dressing of having a mission statement and a kind of broad value vision statement, actually embedding those into the business and talking about their values and why they're important. Yeah, it's exactly why I say I feel like we're going through a, a near, the, the same shift that brands went with consumers is because people that don't back it up fall down really quickly. Yeah. And this veneer yeah. that marketing people sometimes will wrap around a brand, it falls down when it's not true, right? And employees are going through the same thing as we've invested loads of money in careers websites and saying we do these things. And then the experience is like fundamentally different and when you walk at, in the door. At the top level, businesses are, businesses are catching up. And actually, I'm, I'm not going to be too cynical about it just because the mere fact that it's being expressed is a good thing. The business roundtable last year of some of the most influential CEOs and leaders in the United States for the first time said, we don't exist just to deliver shareholder value. And that's actually a massive thing because the minute businesses kind of have that moment where they start to talk about all of those things that are also important to them, Yep. is crucial and we live in a time where politics is increasingly fracturing and fragmenting and it's very hard for governments to actually implement policy agendas and do things in those fractured environments so businesses can step in and fill a lot of that gap i mean it, it was remarkable to see walmart for example ban the sale of ammunition because you know what if the u.s government at a federal level isn't going to do anything on on firearms and gun control well we'll do something about it as a business and that has the power to change lives and influence what people do yeah, I would, I would agree. So we often talk about like there's been a big break in trust. So the financial crisis causes you to lose trust in banks. Yeah. The most of what we saw in society as something we could believe in has kind of fallen away from politics to banking to religion to all of these things have caused us reasons to not trust the world in which we knew and existed. And I think organisations have a real opportunity to stand up yeah. and kind of, even if the purpose is not as clear as it could be there's a real opportunity for organizations to be that thing that brings you right. under the wing and right. makes it better um so it sounds great in terms of like the moral obligation to help people into the world of work and to give people opportunity um there's a load of people in the world that are still really commercially focused like what business value does apprenticeships bring so one of the first things that we lead with to employers is an apprentice will last four years on average in their first job versus a graduate lasting two years that's meaningful in and of itself because employee retention you talked about a tight yeah. labor market yeah. is a massive massive <coughs> part of how you build a successful business and how you keep and retain talent is front of mind for for everyone right now yeah. um the other thing is and this can't be underestimated as every company undergoes this switch 
to becoming, if not a software company, then a company that is at least software enabled, you need people with digital and tech skills. And those are not easy to find. They tend to be quite expensive. If you can bring in people at a young age and actually have a structured program to train them to be a data analyst, a product manager, um, a software engineer at the start of their career, that is really, really valuable. And the good news in particular for people in HR and talent who are trying to make this case is you literally have the apprenticeship levy sitting there that's not been spent, that yeah. you don't need to get external permission from a CFO to kind of go and spend money on these programs. You can invest in them through that budget. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, indeed. And, and then, sorry, the final thing is the diversity piece, because we mentioned before the challenge with graduates and the diversity you're hiring. We've had 65,000 people apply to be white hat apprentices since the end of 2018. And of the apprentices we actually place, 65% are non-white, about half have claimed free school meals, and about 7% are from care leave or refugee backgrounds. So that is a really, really diverse group of people who are highly capable and can come into businesses. I think that deserves an applause. That's, that's strong. Well done. So um, one of the things we talk about a lot is about building stronger relationships. So how do you leverage these moments that you can create in someone's experience to um, what often at work is deemed as quite a, a bad word, shall we say, uh, which is how do you build emotional relationships at work? Not in the sense of you want to build husbands and wives and that kind of stuff, but like how do you get people emotionally committed to each other um, to function at their best? Um, and moments and experiences in the way that you think about them. You do a really good job at that. Um, University is a great opportunity that I feel like I really missed out on, actually, which is to build a network of people, some really strong relationships and a cause for common connection. It'd be really interesting to get your ideas on how do you create strong relationships and a, an opportunity to connect for people with or entering work through apprenticeships. So this is without question the most important thing to emphasize about our apprenticeships. Because if you're talking about driving long-term behavioral change, you are absolutely right. Students get something that is much more profound than their learning. They get the sense of belonging to a community, and community is really important. They're often leaving home for the first time and meeting new people, and they have, they have a status as students, and there are socials, and, and there is, it's a huge part of actually what people take from that university experience. It's not really the degree, yeah. the piece of paper. So we were very determined at the start of White Hat that if we want apprenticeships to actually be able to theoretically replace university, at least for a significant number of people, they have to have that community embedded mm -hmm. within what, what we do. So we have socials, meetups, sports teams, societies. We do professional networking for all of our apprentices. We built an ecosystem around the apprenticeship because actually increasingly, if you look at these people who will be joining companies and are currently joining companies without a degree, they're often the only one or two or three people without a degree in that company. They've got to feel supported and they still have to feel special. And increasingly, when we look at the future, why can't we give apprentices access to finance? Why aren't there apprentice bank accounts, as an example? Because they're better credit than graduates. They're not in debt and actually they're <laughs> earning money. That seems yeah. to make sense. Yeah, yeah. And the same with housing. You, you ultimately want them, 90% of our apprentices at the moment live at home, but why can't we help them access housing? And you have power as an aggregator to do that, and companies are thinking about these things, but the community element is the most compelling way you can convince people, don't go to university if you are just going because you want the social experience and you want to meet people. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really powerful. Um, one more question, and I'm going to open it up for some more um, questions from the room. Hopefully you haven't, you're still with us. Everyone looks pretty engaged there. You all good? Yeah? 
perfect. Okay, cool. Um, I think the, the, the one that I wanted to finish this section on is how, how do the people in this room from all of these great brands that we've talked about, like what's their job in all of this? Yeah. So you guys can do a great job in helping them, but like what's the employer obligation? Because we talk about work as a relationship between workplace and worker, whatever form that manifests itself in the future. But like what's the worker obligation and what should they be doing to be good at this stuff? I think the employer obligation probably focuses on fairness, fairness of how people access your opportunities and also fairness in the way that you assess and vet people. And there are lots of times companies try and do the right thing and they end up accidentally, inadvertently doing the wrong thing. And a great example is there's a company we work with that with the best of intentions decided it would set up a values test to determine if people had the right values to join their company. And we looked at the candidates we were putting forward and who was ending up getting accepted to kind of final interview. And it was nearly all middle-class kids who were getting through. And that, that's unusual at White Hat. That hadn't happened before. And so we were concerned and we looked into it. And it turned out that kids from poorer backgrounds were basically failing on one question, which was essentially, you're running 10 minutes late for a meeting and you spot an old woman in the street struggling with her shopping bags. Do you A, stop to help her, or do you B, continue on to your meeting? And the thing that we found was that kids from less privileged backgrounds were basically not stopping and they were saying, because if I'm late for my meeting, I'm going to lose my job. And then, you know, who knows what I do about my home situation and how can I support the people around me? And it was very easy for the kids from middle class background to, to select the right answer, which was, well, of course, you would help them. And it was just a completely different way of looking at a problem that speaks to the importance of diversity of background and experience. That company was trying to do the right thing, but was just leading to, to the wrong outcome. Yeah, there's a funny stat, right, which is you become the people, the you become the average of the seven people that you spend the most time with or something like that. Mm -hmm. And if you think about ignoring like the academic progress that you might make in ed education, the people that you spend the most time with, like if I look at my life and my family and the expectation and all of those things, like it's, it's kind of hardly a surprise sometimes that the education system that surrounds you is where your norm sits. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So... This, this one is about youth, youth. Um, and it's about, extra, I guess, a blend between what you said in terms of intent and the other part to that is motivation. I think this essence of like emotional commitment rather than rational commitment, like is it about you go to work because you get a paycheck mm -hmm. and the paycheck's what you're striving for? Or is it about you see this as a leapfrog or a springboard in your opportunity in life to greater good um what expectations do you see people coming in with and what kind of motivational drivers do you see stand out in the people that you're working with part a part b is how do employers do a good job at kind of fostering the right kind of environment for them to be more motivated we touched on this before a, a bit with the the values piece so we're seeing that uh, as just a very clear trend um, mm -hmm a lot of young people a lot of our prospective apprentices are asking what does this company stand for what is its purpose what is its value proposition uh, what's its view on the world the other thing though is that there's an increasing kind of and it's it's always interesting to wonder if this is a consequence actually of the financial crisis and the circumstances some people grew up in as a result but they're very serious about wanting to have some form of security and actually i i, I kind of characterized this to someone the other day that 
10, 15 years ago, young people were often characterized as what they, they all wanted to be rich, but, and they thought they'd do that by being reality TV stars. And that was just their, their way to be successful. Yeah, yeah. And that was, was easy. We find that, yes, they do want to make money, actually. A lot of young people do care about that. But they're prepared to work really hard in order to do it. And one of the reasons that the apprenticeship appeals to them versus university is they're making a much more a much more kind of clear and conscious decision about the cost of university and opportunity cost and what that means for what they can go and, and do next mm -hmm. than they ever were when I was making the decision about going to university. Partly because it is just so much more expensive, but also because the more there are conversations in the media about well, what are people actually paying for when they go and spend up to £50,000 to go through three years of university? Yep. It's just almost impossible to get away from. And yep. so they, they, financial stability is important. It's not the same job for life outlook that you had generations ago, but they don't want to feel like their employer will just kind of cut them and burn them at any point. And that is important. And they, they, do, they do care about a loyalty and they'll often repay those employers with that loyalty. And before we go on to the second part, which was what do employers do better to create the right kind of environment, it kind of feels like there's a division for me in desire for the right kind of work, but a lack of opportunity, which creates a really hard gap in the middle, which is how do I skew my choice? Do I stand by unemployment and a greater desire for the right kind of organisation, or do I just get a job? See what I mean? Yeah. So um, how do you see that play out in reality? It's a, it's a, it's a good thought because I, I spent a lot of time earlier in my career working with people where to get any job was, was, a, was a victory and that was really the focus. They do want a career and even if it's a career that spans multiple different companies, they care about that. So employees, employees who can actually talk about programs rather than just you're here to join us, you know, welcome on day one and there's not much onboarding and there's not much sense of where you might go in that company. That's a barrier and that's problematic. So I think where employers can focus on what the long-term um, employee experience looks like in that organization, that's important. Um, and then they care about being invested in. They, they do care about training and development, actually. They want to learn. They are massively hungry to learn, most of the, the people we work with. And if employers won't give them those opportunities, they'll go somewhere where they will get access to those opportunities. So do you believe people know what the destination is that they're shooting for? Because I feel like even in our company, we've got a bunch of really, really smart people. But ask them a five or ten year plan, no idea. Yeah. Oh, like yeah. continued development and growth, important, but the destination less clear. There's a lot there's a lot of this is what I want to do for the next kind of two years or yeah. even five years. There's not a lot of what I want to do for the next ten years. And those are the conversations that our coaches start having with apprentices very early because it does matter actually what choices you make in the workplace and what kind of roles you decide to specialise in and actually what opportunities you take and which you decline. Yeah. But it's you, you were saying you're a governor focusing on careers, advice and guidance. There's so little of that in schools at the moment, unfortunately, and the stuff that does happen isn't particularly insightful very often or always very well done. And so we're spending a lot of time just having to have those conversations with them because we have the resources to deploy to go and do that in a way that schools just don't. But there is a failure in the education system at the moment to have those conversations with, with students and then crucially also to, to make them think thoughtfully about what are the skills I need to acquire if I'm going to be successful in this, this career I want to pursue. Probably an ideal bridge starts with a confession. 
which is I read the first stat on your notes before anyone else arrived in the room, which was uh, by 2030, 85% of the jobs that will exist don't today, um, which is now out there. Um, the, so the bridge to the employer expectation, like you're 17 years old, you have had a reasonably challenged education, but you want to change the world in some way, shape or form. You have all the ambition, but you're trying to strive for something that even the employer that's going to employ you doesn't know what it is yet. Like, that's pretty hard, right? So you don't know because you don't really know what skills you need yet. You haven't specialised in a particular discipline because you haven't gone to university. And the employers on the other side saying, machines are going to take over the world. Humans won't exist to do the jobs anymore. We don't really know what it looks like anymore. Who helps? So this is the important. If you could solve this one yeah, as well, I, I, by the I way. Don't, Drop I'm, the mic and go home. Be very clear. <laughs> I will not claim to have the answer on this. This is the importance of learning how to learn because you are going to have to be able to adapt and, and to shift between different roles. But there are, also, there are also some skills and some competencies that will become increasingly important versus others. So we talk about automation, for example. There are some things that can be automated quite easily. There are some things that are very, very difficult to automate until we get into the region of general artificial intelligence. And those are things like um, compassion, empathy, actually a lot of problem solving that isn't simply typing a number into a spreadsheet and kind of doing an equation. Yep. Um, and the ability to um, build others up and inspire. These are things that we do need to be teaching people early and having conversations with them about because they're seen as soft skills and that's such a mistake when you think of how critical those skills are gonna be in the future of work. They're, they're, they're absolutely critical skills to have. But again, I can't see anything in the, in the school or university curriculum that's really focusing on teaching people this. And a lot of training programs are very blunt force and completely skate over these. And the fact is, you could teach everyone in this country how to code or you could attempt to do so. That's not necessarily the best way of preparing them for what's going to come in the future because a lot of that will get automated. They're going to need to learn how to think and how to problem solve. And, and I, I'm going to carry on pushing you um, on what do... So we said earlier, um, banking system, political system, religion, we're all starting to lose trust in. Organisations have a great opportunity to bring people with them on the journey. What do they do? There's loads of people from companies here thinking, I have a great job to do. I'm passionate about this. I have experiences of mine that I can resonate with. I want to give people opportunity, but nobody knows where it's going. Like, what do they, what do they actually do other than care? Because care doesn't lead to action, right? What do they do to attract talent? What do they do to equip people to create and inspire people to take on some of the opportunities that exist for them without knowing the destination or the path? Because how can you commit to something mm. if you don't know where it's going? Yeah, there is no very easy answer to that, I'm afraid. I, I, I think, I think for, for employers, it's a combination of for businesses in general of trying to spot the waves before they're necessarily emergent and actually constantly thinking about trends and forecasting on trends um, and trying to figure out what is it that, right, at the moment I have a workforce that is structured in a certain way and boards are having these discussions, though they're not always trickling through the organisation. What will our, what will the composition of our workforce look like in five years? What will automation mean for the job mix? 
And then actually, what will it mean for where we're bringing in talent and what we're prioritizing within our organization? It will also mean possibly a different set of leaders who are equipped to deal with those challenges. And businesses are very, um, they're very intensely focused on how they deal with the future of work piece. And as of yet, there is not wide scale change in how they either recruit or train people. And it's one of the things we're trying to work with them on because we talk about apprenticeships as actually being a way of solving this jobs of the future piece. Because unlike a, if you look at a typical academic institution, I'm conscious we have an academic in the room, um, it, takes, it takes a long amount of time to change what you're teaching. And it's the problem with, say, um, a traditional computer science course at university. By the time you get to the end of that course, a lot of the concepts you've learned are not actually all that relevant anymore. And that's a big problem. We can consistently update our curriculum and we have people and advisors and others from industry, from tech, from other places to help us do that because you cannot stay still. Yeah. And I'll throw the hard question out to the room now, which is when was the last time or maybe ask differently, within the last month, put your hand up if you've taken out at least an hour to think about what the future of work means to your organization or your world. Good, people yeah. are thinking about it. That's better than I expected because we get wrapped up in being busy around the now, right? Yeah. And it's hard to think about what the future looks like. So go you. Um, we're finishing now. This isn't on the script, by the way. Um, three things that people should leave today with. Okay, so to the people in the room who have any kind of responsibility for hiring or talent or have the opportunity to implement something like this in your businesses, go and start or set up or scale up an apprenticeship program because part of the point of talking about this is a lot of agonizing over what can we do about the future of work? What we, can we do to attract more diverse people? There is a very clear mechanism out there that exists in the form of apprenticeships, so use it. I think the other thing is constantly challenge, it's almost the, the kind of the lazy assumptions piece. We've had a lot of employers say, well, a graduate has three more years life experience. They're probably a bit more mature and they're probably a little bit more equipped to go and do the things they're doing. Just not true. I mean, we take an example of some of our apprentices. We placed a, a young lady who had been working in, um, in a restaurant from the age of 16. From the age of 18, she moved to a pub. She was assistant manager. She was negotiating accounts payable, accounts receivable, responsible for managing shifts and rotors. The idea that an ancient history graduate age 21 would somehow be more capable of doing a business operations role than her is just completely bogus. And yet we're still having to overcome that question with employers. So, so challenge the, the lazy assumptions. And the third and final piece is don't expect to attract really diverse talent if you are fishing for it in the same places. If you do not broaden out the places where you're looking for talent, you will end up getting the same results um, and you won't fulfill the things that you really want to fulfill uh, at a business level. Thank you.